Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer. I'm Jim Papa, your host. I am a partner at Global Strategy Group, and this show is about the people who work in government and campaigns at any level, federal, state, local, uh, because I've been a staffer, and I've worked with a lot of staffers, and I love the job, and I love the people who do it. So I like to explore how they got there, uh, what they learned from it, their highs, their lows, and where they are today. Today, I am pleased to say that my guest is Fred Hochberg. Uh, Fred had a successful career in business before entering public service. His first role in government was in the late 90s when he served as a staffer in the Small Business Administration under Bill Clinton. In the early 2000s, he left public service. Uh, he was appointed dean at the Milano School of International Affairs at the New School in New York City. But in 2009, he returned to public service uh, with the Obama administration, where he served as chairman and president of the U.S. Export-Import Bank uh, until 2017. And so during that long stretch, he was the longest serving chairman in the agency's history. And in this episode, we talked to Fred about his journey uh, from business to staffer and beyond. I spoke with Fred on July 9th, remotely, of course, because we're in quarantine. Fred Hochberg, uh, welcome to Staffer, and thank you for being my guest today. Happy to be here. Excited to be here. I want to talk to you about your career in the private sector and the public sector. Your mother started Lillian Vernon, an amazingly successful company of the same name, and it grew from the kitchen table and into a powerhouse catalog company that sold all sorts of items. It really became not just an incredibly successful business, but also a culturally relevant business. What was it like growing up literally in the middle of a business? That's a very good question. Uh, you know, partly both my mother and father were in business. Uh, my mother uh, came here with her parents, came here to America with her parents uh, in 1937. They fled uh, Nazi Germany in 33, uh, went to Amsterdam. In fact, the same exact year that Anne Frank and her family left Germany, they left, uh, Anne Frank left uh, Frankfurt, my grandparents and my mother and her brother left uh, Leipzig and moved to Amsterdam, uh, knowing they had to get out of Germany, but not knowing where to go. And Amsterdam was a way station. And they looked at Palestine, they looked at uh, Havana, and uh, ultimately settled on New York. And my grandfather was a businessman. So it was, uh, you know, it was a German Jew, and I think it was just in the blood. Uh, he was a business person, and my mother then helped him in his business, uh, and then started her own business on, as you mentioned, that kitchen table. And by the way, that kitchen table today sits in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington in their entrepreneurship exhibit, uh, where there are not a lot of women uh, featured, and Lillian, I'm proud to say, is one of them. That's incredible. I did not know that. Uh, I need to go visit that now. Um, what, we'll have to wait till it reopens. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. What leadership lessons did you learn from your mother and your father? Well, you learn a sense of economy and you learn a sense of uh, results. I will tell you, I uh, recently went back to Mount Vernon because uh, the house I grew up in, my stepmother recently moved into assisted living. So it's up for sale. It's going to be sold in the next few weeks. And I visited some of the former office buildings and warehouses that Lillian Vernon occupied. And one of them is at 510 South Fulton Avenue. And I noticed the number 510 that I had uh, commissioned, you know, the sign on the building was still there. And one of the things I never forgot, and I chuckled when I saw it, 
We had so little money that uh, the original sign company had designed a sign that said 510 South Fulton Avenue. And I said, well, God, that's a lot of money. What if we just take the word South Fulton Avenue out? I mean, everybody knows what the street is. Can't we just have the number 510? And we saved like $1,500. Um, and that's the kind of sort of cost-cutting economy you do when you start a business. Um, I wasn't there at the very start, but as you're building it, you really do, you know, I used to joke when you're in uh, a small business, you watch the nickels and dimes. When you're in a public company, you watch the quarters, the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had that sense of, you know, results and that sense of uh, getting value. It was important to your parents that you learn the company inside and out from the from the bottom up. And so when you were old enough to work, your mom put you in the warehouse. What did you totally. learn there? Well, I, not only did she put me, in the, did I work in the warehouse, I actually then went to work for two competitors one, in two different summers to, sit, to learn how other companies did it and to also not work for a family business. Uh, one of them I worked in the in their warehouse, a company called Alexander Sales, and another company called Hanover House. I actually worked uh, in the advertising and copy department uh, where you would cut up blocks of copy and file it away before you had computer typesetting. Um, I, you know, I learned what it's like to ship an order. I learned what it's like to pack an order. I also learned ultimately in leading the company, um, nobody at the end of the day could tell me, no, we can't do that because I've been in the warehouse and did it uh, and actually saw what was feasible and what wasn't feasible. Um, so it was invaluable experience. I, I think that um, having done so made it, you know, made me a better boss and a better leader. Uh, you know, even jumping forward, frankly, uh, having worked, we're going ahead of ourselves, you know, at the SBA originally as the number two and later acting as number one and then chairing the Export Input Bank. Working in a federal agency, not at the top job for the first job, is a great experience versus catapulting into the top. And, you know, what are some things that folks who work in public service, as a government, politics, um, misunderstand about the private sector? Well, I think they think it's, all, it's only about money and profits. And, um, you know, in the public sector, the rich thing about working in the public sector is it's very mission focused. And the mission goes a long way when you have long nights, long days, and, you know, salaries may not be as, as robust as they are in the private sector. Um, but the private sector has a sense of mission. Um, it's just, it's more layered. It's not as prominent. Um, so I think that's one thing that's misunderstood. I also think, by the way, today, Jim, the difference between the public sector and the private sector is getting blurred. Uh, the private sector, which was very results and performance oriented, um, and the public sector was more was often more concerned with stakeholders. I think what we've seen is the private sector has to be far more concerned with stakeholders, the community, labor, the environment. The business roundtable has gone a long way in terms of pushing that idea forward. And the public sector, whether it's uh, Vice President Al Gore, Reed and Nancy government, has to be far more focused on giving results, 
making sure we have good graduation rates, crime rates, uh, the environmental standards, food standards. So uh, the, di the difference that may have existed 30, 40 years ago is getting more and more blurred. Yeah. You just hearing you talk about both of your experiences, you have this joy de vivre uh, in describing both. When did you know you wanted to make the transition uh, to public service and how did that come about? Well, I think part of it comes back to um, coming to terms with myself and my identity and my sexual identity. Um, you know, that was in the 70s. It's a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> homosexuality was just at that point in the mid-70s emerged from being uh, a disease to um, it was the American Psychiatric Association uh, took it off the uh, uh, disease list. Um, so in thinking about how that would change, how the world would change, um, because I think my work uh on in those days gay rights now lgbtq plus um is was a search for self-esteem a search for finding a way to sort of feel good in the world and so public service and finding a way to sort of change the political climate was was a part of that so i think it goes back to you know my early 20s when i was coming out and um, but i didn't have a, really a chance until 15 20 years later you uh, eventually served as co-chair of the board of the Human Rights Campaign, which today is the leading organization for LGBTQ plus rights. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your time there and uh, what you were able to uh, accomplish and build. Well, uh, I have enormous uh, respect and admiration for the Human Rights Campaign. I'm, I'm uh, still a consistent um, contributor and donor. I... I I have great admiration for Alfonso David, who's the uh, recently installed uh, president of the Human Rights Campaign. Um, I came in at a time when uh, there were a number of ballot initiatives, and we were we were facing ballot initiatives in, I don't know, 15, 17 states, anti-gay ballot initiatives on everything from schools to uh, uh, jobs to, and to uh, obviously marriage and so forth. So it was a very... Uh, dangerous time in terms of we had scores of people in state after state voting against LGBT issues. And um, it is just after the, um, frankly, loss in the military when uh, President Clinton uh, had vowed to integrate the military to allow gay and lesbian people, um, even before the idea of transgender, to serve. That um, So it was a tough time on on. on on gay rights issues and gay civil rights. So we really had to rebuild from a, a standing start. We had to try and um, build some. And it's from there that the idea of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act uh, came from, that if we we're not going to get full uh, civil rights, perhaps we can find a way to narrow it in the workplace. And here we are uh, in 2020, and the Supreme Court essentially just made that ruling a few weeks ago that um, gay people, lesbian people, transgender cannot be fired on account of sex. So that um, that groundwork was laid in the in the 1993 and before, but certainly my recollection 93 after the defeat in the on the military, which ultimately got 
uh, change in 2010 by President Obama. Um, so I feel very gratified about that work. I will tell you, when I read the report, the newspaper about the Supreme Court making that ruling, I actually started to choke up. I do so now in talking to you. Uh, it was such a long journey and so hard. Um, I feel very good about that. Yeah. Uh, incredible arc. And when you think of all the people touched by that uh, today and long into the future, it's in incredible. And I, it actually it makes me want to ask you about something we're experiencing today, uh, particularly in response to the horrific murder of George Floyd. Um, the last few weeks have seen just an outpouring, um, an emotional um, response from uh, particularly the black community, but in a gratifying way, it's much broader than that. And we're seeing so many Americans give voice to the demand for full and equal treatment and opportunity uh, to people of color in this country. And it feels different to me. Um, I hope that it's different in the future, but you just described a long arc um, because you've been in the center as an advocate for meaningful change and equal treatment. What are your observations of the current moment? Well, I think the current moment, you know, sometimes things just align, you know. Frankly, Donald Trump following Barack Obama, when I think many people thought when we elected uh, a black president that we had sort of, we could check the box and this was now behind us. And I think what the, then the election of Donald Trump sort of pulled a horrible wound open, a scab open. And then, so it, it's frankly, since his election, there's been increased focus on the systemic racism in our country, the fact that there is not equal treatment and not equal access to opportunities and certainly not equal outcomes. And then you have the COVID crisis, which has disproportionately by people of color, blacks, Hispanics in particular, uh, and then you have on top of that the George the George Floyd killing. I think those those events together have just said, wait, this is inescapable. I mean, we had listen, we had Rodney King uh, twenty seven or so years ago that brutal uh, murder in Los Angeles. So it's not like we haven't had and Trayvon Martin. We've had many, but I think this confluence all at once between Donald Trump and the COVID crisis. And then the, and the George Floyd and then the economic uh, disparity, how people of color had dealt with it. I think this is a real reckoning and a real change for us. I also believe strongly and I think we're, you know, we all have our journey. Uh, it feels to me that if we do not seriously find ways to address this, to address the inequality, to address the racism, uh, to address the difference in outcomes on healthcare, that is the most important work we have in the next three or four years. And if we really move forward on that, there's nothing that would stop this amazing country that we live in. And if we don't, it will hobble us. It will actually impede 
are being a great country and our influence on the world. I really believe that more importantly, almost than, than almost anything else we can do in the next three, four years. So there are people listening to this who are on Capitol Hill or in federal agencies that have a role to play here. Um, and some people are out on campaigns hoping to you know, set the table for more change. But specifically to those folks who are staffers who might have bosses on uh, relevant committees, uh, are certainly hearing from advocates from their communities, they presumably uh, also want to make change. And you've been a part as an advocate and as someone who is inside as a uh, public servant. What guidance would you give them as they try to navigate uh, to a better policy landscape that addresses these underlying and systemic issues? Well, you know, it's something I, I, I remember learning very much from uh, President Bill Clinton, and uh, it's maybe a little out of vogue today, and that is finding a way to find common ground. Finding some common ground with people who may not may be adversaries or people who are undecided or, frankly, people that you need to persuade. Um, finding a way to tell a narrative to find common ground to bring them over, as opposed to bludgeoning them with arguments, uh, is is needed. And it's it's hard to do. It's hard to do when you're when who you are as a person, uh, what your place is in this world, your sense of self esteem is being questioned or diminished or discounted. It's really hard to find that resolve to do so. Um, but. Um, I don't know another way of doing it for me. Uh, others may. I don't know another way of doing it. It certainly was something President Obama tried to do. It's certainly something that President Clinton, I saw, try and do uh, in their offices, trying to find common ground to sort of move things forward in a forward direction. And sometimes, you know, uh, I, we have to just take we have to take intermediate steps. Um, um, and a lot of people find that's a compromise. But if you don't take intermediate steps and you only wait for the giant step, you're never going to get there. You know, we try. I'll give you an example, Jim. We tried to pass the Employment Employment Non Discrimination Act uh, 15 years ago, and uh, we faced the forces to try and get it passed. Faced resistance on the left and the right. Uh, on the left, it wasn't progressive enough because it did not include transgender at the time. Understandably, that was um, a, a grave omission. And on the right, it went too far. And um, it didn't pass for 15 years. I don't know what the answer is. And I know I'm, I'm saying something rather risky today in today's environment, but um, we it took another 15 years to get there. Um, and a lot of people's lives were badly impacted. Uh, and maybe um, a partial measure might have built up a resolve to do so. I know a number of members of the Black Caucus did not understand why we didn't take a partial measure on gay and lesbian and come back later and, and add transgender issues. Um, but we didn't do that. You know, when we let, we had exemptions for small business, we had exemptions for religious organizations, we had a lot of exemptions. But um, that's a that's a hard question to answer. I mean, Bill Clinton was a great compromiser. 
Um, and he felt that was the way to move things forward. Barack Obama, in many ways, was also a compromiser. So, um, but right now we're not. I think maybe we've gotten to a point that that's that's out of out of step. You know, you've mentioned two presidents who you advised and worked very closely with. Is there anyone who you would describe as a mentor in your public service? Oh, I, certainly Bill Clinton was a mentor, without question. I mean, he, you know, I would say that was the first time I actually really worked on a presidential campaign and ever really seriously thought about serving um, in government, in, in, in an administration. Uh, so uh, Bill Clinton, certainly somebody. Um, Barack Obama, certainly somebody. Uh, Larry Summers was a, was a terrific mentor, both when I was at the Small Business Administration and someone I worked with closely when I was at the chairman of the Export-Import Bank. Um, uh, those, are, those are three I can think about. You know, uh, I, I became very close friends with um, Kathleen Sebelius. Um, uh, she certainly provided a lot of good guidance. And, you know, I'll give you one other example is, uh, who now is in Congress, Donna Shalala. Um, I was at... Uh, I was a dean for five years in New York at the New School. Uh, Donna Shalala was president of University of Miami. Larry Summers was president of Harvard. And um, both of them actually provided good mentorship uh, as I was trying to navigate uh, the academy, as did a man named Henry Rosofsky, who's at uh, uh, Harvard and one of the longest serving deans of arts and sciences. So there were a number along the way. That's an incredible list. Of mentors. I'm a very, I'm a very, very, very fortunate man. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Let me ask about the people who you relied upon. You were you you began uh, as you said as a uh, a deputy administrator uh, at the SBA, and then you were acting uh, director of the SBA. You eventually became the the president and chairman of the Export Import Bank during the Obama administration, longest serving, I might add. You became a principal, went from staffer to principal, and had to rely on hundreds and thousands of staffers. What um, what do you think makes the best staffers? Uh, you know, someone gave me this idea when I actually was working on um, uh, Andrew Cuomo's campaign for governor uh, when he ran in 2002. And the advice I was given was, what does he worry about? What's he losing sleep about? What is he um, worried about at the end of the month or the end of the quarter? And um, that was really good advice because it made sure I put myself in, in that case, in, in his shoes and thought about, okay, you know, at the end of every quarter, he's worried about reaching his fundraising goal. So what can I do to uh, alleviate that? Oh, do a fundraiser the last two, three days of every quarter <laughs> and, and do your part there. So um, I think trying to, again, you know, it's, um, it's, what I, it's related to what I said about finding common ground. It's putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. What is he or she worrying about? What does he or she have to wrestle with and to try and figure that out? So as a staff person, what, what, can, what can I take off her plate? What what. Things can I do that so she doesn't have to worry about that? I love that advice. Um, you've talked about the importance of finding compromise uh, and common ground. 
Maxine Waters had really amazing things to say uh, about you, chair of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, a Democrat. Um, you worked with her and many others on both sides of the aisle to reauthorize the Export-Import Bank. Who is someone on the Republican side who you worked with closely, you respect, um, and you know you think is a model for uh, members who are also willing to find common ground? Well, I think, you know, the one that comes to mind, and I, I and by the way, were it not for uh, a House Financial Services uh, chair, and at that point she was ranking because uh, the Republicans were in charge, uh, Maxine Waters was an, a tireless fighter and advocate and put everything into it and did a spectacular job. I mean, we would not have had such a good reauthorization without her work. And on the Republican side, um, a member of Congress who has retired, Stephen Fincher of Tennessee, um, had originally voted against the Export-Import Bank in the previous reauthorization, um, went back to his district, learned about what how it impacted jobs in the small businesses in his part of Tennessee, and uh, wrote the first bill uh, going against his chairman, Jeb Henseling, and uh, that bill became the foundation for what, the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank. And so I really believe were, were it not for Stephen Fincher to have sort of uh, taken the bold step, and he was, a, I think, a, a second-term congressman to sort of cross his chairman, uh, I don't know where the bank would have been. So he's really one of those, it's a, it's a trite term, unsung heroes uh, of that battle. And I would say one of the... Person now, as I'm thinking about the question, uh, Ray LaHood, who um, President Obama brought in as the Transportation Secretary, uh, had been a Republican congressman from uh, Peoria, Illinois. Um, I learned a lot from Ray. Ray is uh, the most unflappable person I have met in public service and had a calmness uh, about dealing with adversity that is something that uh, I admire and uh, would always like to model myself on. Yeah, those uh, two great members. I, I got to work with Ray LaHood uh, at, when I was at the White House, and he was Secretary of Transportation. And one of the things I loved about him was just no BS. And it was always very direct. Um, he could simplify complex things and always good to people, you know, you know blunt in his style of his directness, but not with an edge. It, it was always good to uh, people mm -hmm. around him. Totally. What's a on the other side of the coin? What's a common mistake that you see staffers make? And if if you could name a pet peeve, right? Something that just makes you crazy. <laughs> Too many acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I remember Government's getting, the wrong place. Getting to the. Oh my God! I remember Janet Napolitano who uh, said to me they actually had an app at Homeland Security because there were like eight hundred. Uh, acronyms. I remember sitting at an early staff meeting at the Export-Import Bank and someone mentioned, or I read in a, re in a weekly report, an acronym, and I said, well, what does that mean? And literally, I never will forget this, two people on opposite sides of the table came up with a different answer uh, of what that acronym <laughs> was. So uh, we use many, far too many acronyms, and uh, most people are uncomfortable asking what does that mean so they sit there and they just sort of let it go and therefore you're really losing part of your audience so uh money too, too many acronyms 
<laughs> and memos that are too long. <laughs> um, so I have a, a couple of recurring segments uh, that I want to run by you. One is called In the Vault. And what I'd love to hear from you is a story when you royally screwed up. And this can be in any one of your uh, positions. But you really made an error and you knew you made a mistake. And so did other people. How did you recover from that? Well, I, I, first one comes to my mind is actually one when I was in the private sector at Lillian Vernon. Um, we moved the company from the New York metropolitan area to Virginia Beach, just outside of Norfolk, Virginia. And um, we had allowed for three months to get all the, the computer systems in the warehouse. This was sort of a precursor to the, to the Amazons of this world, where we would get orders in and we would ship out, you know, tens of thousands of packages a day. And um, it turns out everything that we really worried about um, worked. And what didn't work was the one area that there was a certain coordination between um, products that were uh, monograms with your name or initials on it could be a a backpack for going back to school or monogram pencils or a piece of jewelry or Christmas ornaments and doing that monogramming and then quote unquote, marrying that back up with the rest of your order. And we could not get those systems to work. And, um, and the orders were piling up. They were piling up. We would, you know, we'd get in 10,000 orders a day and we'd ship out 5,000. And the next day we get in 12,000 orders and we'd ship out 4,000. And so, this backlog was just, we just could not get everything through the computer system and through the warehouse. And um, it was an unbelievably stressful time. <laughs> um, so one thing is I called everybody together and I remember vividly saying, listen, this is my responsibility. I'm accountable here. I, this was my responsibility. I screwed up. Uh, we're gonna, I need everybody's help to get it to work, but I took full responsibility. And then I got everybody a T-shirt. I remember the T-shirt I got. It said, are we having fun yet? <laughs> <laughs> and people were looking kind of glum. And I said, listen, this is a serious problem. This is not solemn. Solemn is what happens in church, what happens in a synagogue, in a mosque. That's solemn. This is serious. We got to just simply solve it. And we're going to have to, and if we have a good time, we figure, and we're creative, We'll solve it faster. So we had allowed three months to get ready for that holiday season. It took four months. Um, it, at the end of the day, it sounds like, you know, well, it was an extra month. It was a torturous month. <laughs> wow. Um, I love I love that story because it actually reminds me of trying to catch up on congressional correspondence backlogs. And I could have used some of your advice. The levity the uh, the serious, not solemn, you know, those those are both really important. In addition to the personal responsibility, all of that is just a great response. Well, solemn, otherwise it just grinds people down. And it, 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 I usually find some, finding some way to have some levity um, brings out the best in people. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your book. Trade is not a four-letter word. Oh, I uh, love talking about my book. Actually, yes. <laughs> um, 
tell me why why did you write the book and what are you hoping that people take from it well i funny that the book came out of I, i'm very fortunate i um served as you mentioned and we met in my time at the export input bank i was uh, yes, the longest serving, and I like to tell people I was the long-suffering chair of the Export-Import Bank. <laughs> <clears throat> Since the Republicans did try and shut us down and were successful in doing so for about five months and four days, not that I counted. <laughs> and incredibly, and, you got it back on a bipartisan basis. And we got it back on a bipartisan basis, get it back up and running. So in the eight years I was uh, in the administration, the tide and the tone around trade got in increasingly negative. Now, I was on the export side of it in particular, so I just didn't understand why is this getting such a negative idea about trade and ex and you know, because exports are an integral part of trade, you know, trade is about buying and selling. And we are not going to be a great export nation unless we're also an import nation. We both have to import not only intermediate goods, so you know, components to, that make goods, but uh, the world revolves around trade. People want to go back and forth, not just say, oh, just buy everything we make and we're going to buy nothing from you. I mean, that's the China model, by the way. China would like to sell to the world and buy nothing. Ultimately, that's a, that's a failed prospect. So, but we had a, just a more and more negative view about trade. Um, I got invited to be a, a fellow at the Institute of Politics out at the University of Chicago with David Axelrod. I also got invited, uh, fortunately, to do it at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And um, I had to come up with a course, design a course for undergraduates. And I knew, uh, Jim, that a course holding uh, about the Export-Input Bank would attract probably nobody. Uh, <laughs> I knew if I had a course, resetting America's trade agenda in the 21st century would attract perhaps even less. So I had to come up with a provocative title that hopefully 20-year-olds and 19-year-olds would find interesting enough. So trade is not a four-letter word. I thought that would uh, captivate people. And so I d it was uh, examining what's happened to trade, what's happened to our role in the world. And as a result of the course, uh, which went for each place for about eight weeks, was and I had guest speakers uh, over and over again, both speakers and students said after class, why aren't you writing a book on this? And I, I had never, ever thought about writing a book in my entire life. So um, that's, where, that's where the idea came from. Um, I, I will t I put a plug in. I met um, uh, Matt Latimer of Javelin, who uh, is my agent, who does a lot of books for people in Washington, um, and... Um, worked with them and came up with a title for a book and came up, took, kept that working title, became the title, the final title as well. What I want people to come away with is understand the nuance of trade. You know, there are, we have benefited enormously from trade. We have also hurt a number of people because of trade who have not been able, whose lives have been upended and disrupted. And we did not do a sufficient job uh, to, to support them. And our social safety net was very weak and full of holes. And frankly, Jim, we see that today with the COVID crisis. If anything, this COVID crisis has done, it has shown us all the holes in our social safety net, including the unemployment system and healthcare systems. So um, that 
is still there. So I'm hoping we take that away that, okay, there's work to be done here. Yeah. And and you uh, take the topic of trade and put it through the lens of several well-known products. One of them is Game of Thrones. What does Game of Thrones have to do with trade? Everything. Everything has to do with Talk trade. Talk to me. And I, and I will actually tell you, I, was, uh, I stayed at a hotel in Washington and um, one of the doormen stopped me and he said, I read the Game of Thrones chapter and he said, I just look at Game of Thrones entirely differently now. And I said, my God, the, the actual, the, the, the doorman of the hotel had read it. So what it has to do with Game of Thrones um, was created by two Americans, filmed in uh, Malta with actors from around the world, musicians from around the world. Um, were it not for trade, um, that show would not exist. Uh, it is. It was broadcast to 170 countries. Uh, generated hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenue for the United States and for people working in it. And uh, partly we think of trade so much in terms of uh, airplanes, cars, tractors, uh, and we forget that we are a service economy. Uh, one of the strongest things we can actually export is services. And frankly, the entertainment business, television, radio, uh, music, uh, films is about an $800 billion business. We export about $200 billion of it, more than we do in aerospace, and yet we don't think of it as a giant export. I mean, it may explain why sometime when you go to the movies, you say, this movie doesn't really appeal to me, and partly the reason is it isn't for you. 25% <laughs> of the movies are being exported, so it's looking at a much more broader market than just the U.S. market. And it pays very well. Uh, and I'm not just talking about actors. I'm talking about people in in sound techniques, scenic design, catering, all of that. It is a huge job employer, a huge multiplier, and yet we don't often think of it as a tradable asset. And it's a huge trading asset and one where we should not overlook. And one of our great advantages in the 21st century. And with that, I want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for being my guest today, Fred. Um, your career is so impressive. I could talk to you for you know several more hours. Um, I wish you the you know best of luck on all things going forward. And uh, thank you. Thank you. It was it was a lot of fun. Well, friends, I can smell the jet fumes at National Airport, which means another episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And please make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.